everybody, and Happy New Year. For today's episode, I'll be recapping the latest episode of Dexter, New Blood, The Family Business. And the next show I'll be covering with Sona, my co-host, is an Apple Plus show called The After Party, premiering on the 28th of January. Another comedy mystery show. Speaking of, this week, Search Party is coming back for HBO Max. I will probably be covering that here with my wife in some way. I think they're dropping the whole season at once, so it might be a season recap, or maybe we'll break it up into multiple episodes. But she's a big fan of that show. I have some qualms with the last season of it, but in general, big fan of that show. And I am curious to see how, if this is the final season, how they land it. And that'll be premiering this week. And it's another comedy mystery show, like Only Murders in a Building, which we did cover as well in the same feed. So check those down if you're curious. And if you haven't caught up on Dexter so far, fans really enjoy it. I have major qualms with the show, but I thought this particular episode was a very good one. But the reason I'm doing this by myself today, by the way, is that Sona and her whole family <laughs> have contracted uh, coronavirus. And they're not sure how they got it, but luckily they're all vaccinated and boosted, so they have very minor symptoms, and I'm sure she'll be back by next week. Beyond that, I will also be discussing just a rewatch I just did recently of the Scream films. The first three so far have not watched the fourth one again, have not watched it again since, since it originally played in theaters quite some time ago, but it is the 25th anniversary of the first Scream movie, just past the 25th anniversary, and I'll give you some history of that film, a review and breakdown of that original film, and the trilogy in general, mostly be talking about the first film though, which is really the, the best of the three, although I do enjoy the series, and also, as some context, just the history of slasher movies as well. So if you're curious to know where did slasher movies come from, it's actually been around for a very long time, actually over 100 years, believe it or not. So that's all today, the Dexter recap, my Scream rewatch in preparation, for the fifth movie, yes, they're rebooting Scream, and it's coming out next week. So I'm re-watching the, the Scream movies in anticipation. And if you're planning to see those Scream movies, you may want to listen. But before we get to all of that, as usual, make sure you subscribe so you know when these episodes become available. And drop us a line if you feel like giving us some feedback. Need some introduction at gmail.com. But to kick things off, if you grew up in the 80s, as I did, slashers were everywhere. It was a very, very popular movie genre. And beyond the massive success of some iconic, specific series of slasher films, once they kind of failed at the box office, they transitioned just as the VHS home market was exploding and everybody suddenly had VHS players at home. And also younger people could watch movies they probably shouldn't be watching because they weren't getting, no, they'd have to buy a ticket at a movie theater. This all kind of culminated in this incredible swell of slasher films because you had the few, relatively few, really successful theatrical series, but you had untold thousands of cheap knockoffs that went straight to cable. So it was, it was inescapable. Slashers were so prevalent in the 80s. So if you're relatively younger, you may not have realized where this kind of slasher genre emerged from. You may think it may have originated with Scream in some ways that that was the really what popularized it, but not the case. So I will give you a history, a rather fascinating history, I would say, of the slasher film. Believe it or not, to get a feel for slasher films, this has probably, strangely, probably been with us for thousands of years. Probably back, you have to go back to the original theatrical productions of, of old times. I mean, you have beheadings in Macbeth, and even earlier than that, you have eye gouging in Oedipus Rex. So it's not uncommon to have grisly content in theatrical productions. But one very important stopping point, theatrically speaking, was the Grand Guignol, which was a French movement of theater that was very bloody, like had explicit, violent, 
gore. And the hook was to recreate oftentimes real life serial killings or something like that. Obviously, Jack the Ripper was emerging at this time, was a big boogeyman, a very famous story to this day, but of course at the time, even more so. But other violent crimes were reenacted in these theaters. People would actually show up to see these grisly crimes reenacted. And oftentimes they'd have a storyline as well, some kind of murder mystery or something like that. And this was very popular in France, but controversial. And then film developed around the same time, the end of the late 1800s, early 1900s. So some of these theatrical producers started to make films that were based on these same scripts, and they were grisly, right? They were, you see, like, gore, even back then, over 100 years ago. But that all went away. I think we think about old films, and we think about how chaste they are. There's no sex, there's no nudity, there's only implied violence. But you'd be surprised if you go and look at some of these lost films from pre-Hayes Code. The Hayes Code was like a moral code, a morality code, that rose up to regulate these morally conservative folks, basically gained cultural and political cachet by by criticizing what they thought was the loose morals of Hollywood, which was a, a, a huge emerging industry. This led to the Hayes Code. And really, that's what we see in retrospect now. When we look back on older films, we kind of see this very chaste period of time. But even in this down period, horror boomed, actually, right? You think about Frankenstein and Dracula and those films, those classic universal monsters from the 1930s. So horror was always there. But the slasher film explicitly kind of lost its luster with removing gore from the equation. But it still existed in other forms. For example, Agatha Christie, a very famous writer in this period of time, 1920s, 1930s, wrote many books that are basically templates for slasher films today. Most famously, Ten Little Indians, where a bunch of guests are on an island and they're being killed off one by one by somebody amongst their group. Also, you think about the early Hitchcock films like The Lodger and films like that. Once again, The Lodger is like a fictionalized version of the Jack the Ripper story where somebody among this town is killing the other other people within the town. And then there's this mysterious element of who could it be and the person who they believe it to be, who's being stalked by the townspeople. Is this the right person or not? It's pretty heady stuff. It's actually a very interesting film to think in retrospect, to, to see some of the themes in there. So it's not a straight slasher. I think something that is a true staple of the slasher film is eventually, and, and beyond the scope of these films I'm, I'm mentioning here, the creative method of killing the individuals is the lore of the film. Like you're there to see the kills, right? People will literally say that that was a good kill. So that is something that is differentiated from these earlier films, which had to be pretty chaste. You didn't actually linger on the method of death. Although even those Agatha Christie films and books, there is some creativity in the way these different people are dispatched, right? So it's not so chaste as you may think. And I'm not going to get into all of it, but realistically throughout Hitchcock's career, and there's many examples of some of these films, and even some gory films that kind of snuck in there through independence means that existed there. But maybe the first really formative year for this genre of the movies is 1960. You have two films come out from British directors. One, Psycho from Alfred Hitchcock. Not a gory film, but obviously an iconic serial killer. And there's all the sexual subtext. There's a lot of what is going to be iconic in these serial killer movies or these uh, slasher films even then. And ironically, that film, controversial before it came out, became the biggest film of the year in which it was released. It was a massive success. It got Academy Award nominations. On the complete opposite side of this was a very well-respected Michael Powell. This almost ruined his career. Same year, 1960, a movie called Peeping Tom. Similarly here, very fascinating. This is the story of a Peeping Tom, who's also a camera operator, who is filming women while he kills them. He uses like a, a razor on the edge of a, one of the legs of his tripod to kill them so he can actually kill them while he's filming them. 
trigger warnings, by the way. But if you're here for the Dexter recap, I assume you're okay with some of this grisly content because there will be some grisly descriptions of content here, especially when I get even into just the Scream movie recaps. But like I mentioned, ironically, Michael Powell's career is almost destroyed, almost ruined. A very well-respected director whose career is almost ruined by this Peeping Tom movie, which was not a financial success and created a lot of controversy. But it's a fascinating film and has many themes that you will see in later slasher films. For example, we don't take a POV, killer's POV, throughout the entire film. But when we see him shooting the film, we're in his POV. And then when he's re-watching the films, he, we're inside of his POV. So the idea of like this POV of the killer is already here in this, you know, 1960s. So this early on. And once again, like Psycho, the sex thrill element or subtext of the film is there as well. Now, following the success of Psycho specifically, we start seeing many serial killer adjacent films, mostly cheesy knockoffs. Some of them are like kind of prestige, so they don't really, they're not really scary in a lot of ways. Some of them go the opposite route. They get gory, they get, but the production values are low and they're kind of appealing to the worst aspects of this, which by the way, is maybe more indicative of what happens to slasher movies more than anything else, is the cheap thrill part of it. And this continues throughout the 60s, but then I think there's variable different moments where the slasher film kind of emerges. But the next really huge one that I would point out is late 60s, early 70s, the giallo genre in Italy. Dario Argento just being the most famous artist in this genre, but it existed here already. Now, first of all, where this gets closer and closer to being slashers is that oftentimes, or almost always, especially with Argento's films, the kills are extremely creative. Like you have inventive ways where people are being murdered and he's constantly trying to top himself throughout the 70s uh, and these other filmmakers as well. It becomes this lure for the audience to come and see how the killers are going to kill these victims off in the film in these very creative means, mechanisms. Another reason this is very interesting is because it's something that is so prevalent early in even the slasher films, but it gets dropped after the peak of the slasher genre, but comes back again in Scream itself. And what that is, is the Agatha Christie element of this, the killer amongst us. Who is the killer? Like, you know, in every single Giallo movie, if you've seen it before, any of the Argento films, that you know you've been introduced to the killer at the beginning of the film, and the key is, can you figure out who that is before you get to the end of the film? So there's a game of solving the mystery simultaneously. Of course, you're there for these really grotesque, oftentimes, uh, murders. And this is very successful overseas, internationally successful. Argento brings a lot of attention to the Italian cinema at this point. And then we have Larry Clark's, which I've recommended before when I talked about Halloween in my Halloween episode, if you have listened to that in the past, Black Christmas, which is a great slasher film and really the prototype for so much of the flash slasher films that will come later. But it really is indebted heavily to these yellows. It has a murder mystery. It has a killer on a college campus, by the way, killing girls inside of a sorority. It has a very creepy killer, by the way, and it has the POV kill, which is something that we did see also in Deep Red Argento, but Deep Red comes a year later, right? Where we basically are seeing, strangely, by the way, perversely, <laughs> Argento's hands. Like when he's strangling someone to death or killing somebody, it's his hands on screen. So make of that what you will. <laughs> Definitely transgressive on the filmmaker's part where he has to strangle his actresses himself. But Larry Clark's Black Christmas, very good film. Very easy to watch, by the way. Make sure you watch the original. Don't watch those remakes. They're terrible. But the first one is excellent and really is the template for, of course, Halloween. And I've mentioned this in the previous conversation about Halloween that John Carpenter saw Black Christmas and even pitched that you should have a holiday themed killer series. And uh, he says Halloween would be a great 
you know, low-hanging fruit, obviously, and Larry Clark didn't want to make the film, so John Carpenter ended up making it. And of course, the most important thing about Halloween is not that, I mean, it's definitely original. It's a definitely an excellent film, by the way. If you like slasher films, it is the prototype for all that are to come. But what it brings to the formula, and it becomes much more prevalent later, is that we no longer care about the mystery of who this person is. Although we've always tried to, <laughs> inevitably, try to make Michael Myers into, into a person when he's really supposed to be just like a force of nature, like a, a shark, basically, that just eats for no reason. But what we have there is we've disposed of the murder mystery aspect of this genre. We are now in the POV of the killer. So the killer, in a way, becomes the protagonist in many ways that becomes the prototype for what is to come. And the most important thing that happened with that film, by the way, the absolute most important thing that happened was that the film was made for hundreds of thousands of dollars and made something like $70 million at the box office internationally, which in today's money would be hundreds of millions of dollars. And of course has a whole legacy of this evergreen property of every single Halloween gets played on television and sells DVDs and has special editions, etc. This thing has generated half a billion dollars probably, and it costs almost nothing to make. And that was something that Hollywood really paid attention to. I did gloss over the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I know that's often considered a slasher film. And in some ways, it is in this genre of the dehumanized killer. But I disagree. First of all, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is an, a brilliant film, by the way. One of the best American films, I think, of the past 50 years. But at the same time, it is very different. You know, there are kills. By the way, the kills are not graphic in that film, despite its reputation. But for me, the film is much more about this tension between rural and city America. And uh, not really, uh, so it's a little outside the pale. But I do want to include it here. It's a great film. And it definitely influenced its reputation specifically, by the way, because films were more and more graphic as the slasher genre continued. But it's strange that Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Halloween are both relatively bloodless compared to what was to come. Of course, the next really, really important moment in slasher films is 1980s Friday the 13th, which interestingly goes back to the giallo in some ways. You're now at a, you know, you're a summer camp. It's Killing off teenagers becomes obviously the mode here. We had babysitters getting killed in Halloween, and uh, we had sorority girls getting killed in Black Christmas. And now we have a bunch of camp counselors who, of course, are having sex. And as we've seen in the previous two movies I just described, having sex will get you killed. And this was a conservative time for America. You know, Reagan had just one election. So the conservative paranoia here of teenagers being <laughs> murdered <laughs> for their transgressions, whether it was smoking weed or having sex, was probably on their minds. But what's interesting about Friday the 13th, people forget that Jason does not kill anybody in Friday the 13th. His mother is the killer in Friday the 13th, and she is one of the workers on the campgrounds. So it really goes back to the giallo of someone among us is killing us off. It's really 10 little Indians, but with very gross, at the time, Tom Savini, the makeup artist, famously, really, really gross makeup effects. And this is where it became like, let's top ourselves, let's keep topping each ourselves with the more and more creative kills. Now, there are a slew of other films I could mention here, which I'm not going to bore you with, but maybe I will at some point have a conversation about just the history of sl uh, slasher films and a, a list for people to watch if they're curious about some good ones. Many, many bad ones, by the way. So <laughs> there's like good ones. There's ones that aren't good, but are strange enough that you they almost need to be discussed. And then there are ones that are like so bad, they're good almost, right? There's so many. I mean, we're talking about hundreds. But to finally start pushing things back towards the conversation about Wes Craven and Scream, Wes Craven, a little director called Wes Craven, has been working this whole time. He made The Last House on the Left, which is more of a grindhouse film, not really a slasher film at all. Very difficult film even to watch now. It was very successful, by the way, but very controversial. And it almost ruined his career. It was the very first film, almost ruined his career. But then his next film was uh, The Hills Have Eyes, 
which has a pretty decent remake as well. But uh, I'm not a big fan of the first one, by the way. It's more of an action film, but um, the remake's actually not too bad. But it was a huge hit. So this really kind of made his bones and it really helped him uh, develop his reputation. And then he had nothing really that big. He had worked for the next half decade and really not scored any other big hits. But then just as kind of we were completely overwhelmed with slashers there were hundreds of them they were all going straight to vhs most of them uh the ones that had been coming out from the big studios had mostly failed brian de palma um who's a very talented director had made some almost slasher like films like dress to kill for example maybe his most successful one so there was kind of like slasher adjacent erotic thrillers and things like that but it wasn't really straight up slashers and that was kind of how this almost survived right the and you see it even in the 80s and 90s whether it's fatal attraction or basic instinct the slasher almost went in that direction went to a more mature audience but the teen slashers really moved to vhs and just as the genre was kind of dying off in the 83 84 wes craven like i mentioned the director of the hills have eyes and last house on the left came up with a new character Freddy Krueger. And this revitalized horror for a while, really became the, the Nightmare on Elm Street series, became the most successful horror series for multiple years in a row. It was hugely successful. There were many, many knockoffs. None of them were successful. But it really, the, taking this to this new creative level, kind of really destroyed the slasher film in a way. The generic slasher film went away. What came out of Nightmare on Elm Street wasn't necessarily you're going to have all these dream killers, which was, was the obvious low-hanging fruit. But what did happen was that you started seeing a lot of makeup, makeup effects being central to horror movies. There was some precedent to this. The uh, Alien movie had obviously been, been hugely popular. And basically, Alien is a slasher movie in space, by the way. And then The Thing also, which is kind of a supernatural slasher film as well, which was a disaster when it came out, but over the years had become considered one of the best films of all times, which it is, by the way. <laughs> Once again, another horror film that really needs to be on your watch list if you're not a horror fan. So Freddy in some ways killed the slasher film, even as it became hugely popular. The sequels came out, Freddy became more and more of a jokester, a quipster. He became the hero of the films, which was always the case with slasher films, maybe, that the central protagonist had always been the killer, and that just became overt with the Freddy films. So within a short period of time, I mean, you have a few examples. You have Hellraiser, which is not really a slasher film, by the way. You have the Chucky movies, Child's Play, which once again, kind of a slasher, but doesn't really fit the criteria and like i mentioned before the whole there's a mystery who could it be who's our, who's the killer among us that whole thing is out the window at this point which leads us to 1996 the slasher film is dead we have not had a hit slasher film in who knows a decade maybe all that you know nightmare on elm streets the halloweens the chuckies the friday the 13th all that stuff is dead but wes craven still kicking around wes craven in 1994 interestingly movie he makes immediately before scream he goes back to freddy and he makes writes a script he makes a meta movie about freddy krueger and nightmare on elm street in the film the cast of the original nightmare on elm street are being haunted by some being in their in their nightmares it's as if they have manifested in real in the real world freddy krueger so robert england the actor who plays freddy is haunted by this Freddy in his dreams. The producer of the series, the director, Wes Craven, is in the film. Wes Craven's in the film himself. Heather Ligenkamp, the uh, protagonist, the final girl in the original series. Oh, by the way, another cliche, another important point that emerges with Halloween and then Friday the 13th is that, which was not originally there with some of the earlier films I described, is the whole concept of a final girl, that there's a girl, usually the smartest or the most pure, who survives 
where no one else survives by being practical, by being pragmatic, by being morally pure oftentimes. And that's the case for Halloween. It's the case for Sigourney Weaver and Alien. It's the case for the Friday 13th film, although she dies in the beginning of the next one. <laughs> so I'll only survive to die another day. But in general, there's this final girl. So that again, another motif that we see over and over again, and we will see again parodied and exemplified in the Scream movie. But Wes Craven has already dabbled in metafiction by making a film about the making of the next Friday the 13th film. With that film, by the way, not a success. People who are fans of Freddy hated that film. Once again, like many of these films, in retrospect, has been reappraised. But that leads us, very importantly, to 1996. Scream. <laughs> Five years ago now. If you're like me, that makes you feel very old. So Scream, written by Kevin Williamson. Some of these stories might be apocryphal, by the way, but this is <laughs> the mythology around it. He was a struggling writer, had not really hit it big. Williamson stays at his friend's log cabin and basically writes Scream all in one go, pretty much in the matter of a weekend or a little more than that, if the legend is to be believed. And he basically just tries to scare himself, you know, putting himself in this circumstance. The script is a huge success. And as a matter of fact, he always pitches it as the first film and he has treatments for the whole concept of a trilogy. There's actually a bidding war for the script. And in the, in the midst of this, he actually sells some of his other scripts as well. There's renewed curiosity and he has a very successful run at this point. He has, I know what you did last summer in 1997. He writes the Scream 2 script also in 97, two very big hits. And he also starts producing Dawson's Creek, which of course becomes, you know, iconic for that era as well. So he has a very successful run. Then he has a string of failures, but now is, has a whole second wind in his career. He produced The Vampire Diaries, which even bigger success than these earlier successes, and continues to produce shows and write scripts now as well. I don't think he's involved at all with Scream 5, however, or Scream, as they're calling it. They're just calling it Scream. I'll double-check that before we get to that part of the story. But there's a bidding war for the script. They bring in Wes Craven. I think that this is Miramax, by the way, Harvey Weinstein's now-disgraced company but at the time was very successful. They had brought up Quentin Tarantino, and this was Dimension Pictures, so they had a offshoot of their company that was for genre films. And they really never struck it that well, except, except for the Scream films themselves. Not only did they have the Scream films, but then the scary movie films, which were even more successful, ironically, because the first scary movie is a straight ripoff of <laughs> the script for Scream. They literally just take the same exact script for Scream 1 and some elements of Scream 2 and just inject jokes in there, which there were already jokes in there, there by the way, people. But at the moment, at that time, it was a phenomenon. It's made a, a fortune. But that's a whole other topic. The original script name for Scream was Scary Movie, ironically enough. They bring in Wes Craven, which I assume was because they had seen the most recent Freddy movie, because this contract was signed in 95, right around the time that the Freddy movie was still circulating, the new nightmare, as it was called, the last of the Freddy movies, or at the time, the most recent Freddy movie, which of course has this whole element of meta-commentary. The characters in the script are all very savvy. They're very aware of the tropes and the cliches of the slasher film. And of course, they're aware that they are inside of a slasher film. That's the conceit of the Scream movies. So I'm sure that's what brought Craven on board or what attracted the producers to bring in Craven. And then there had been some early 
screenings. So there was some buzz. This is pretty early in the virality on the internet. There is no YouTube yet. There's no social media yet or very limited social media. So really it was kind of like these message boards and forums where there was just these rumors that there was a lot of buzz around this film. And of course, the folks who had read the script and started bidding more initially. But what happens is the film gets moved around the calendar. They decide to put it around Christmas time in 1996. They put it out on Christmas weekend, a very strange time to be dropping a horror movie, but believe it or not, there's always kind of counter-programming around the holidays, around Thanksgiving, and around Christmas, where usually there'll be an action movie or a horror movie that will drop. And honestly, the idea is like, we'll make some quick cash. The kids are, and maybe some kids are stuck on campus for the holidays. They couldn't make it home. Or maybe the family wants to go see some lost puppy movie or something, and they're going for counter-programming. And that's really what Dimension was trying to do. And like I mentioned, Dimension was just getting their feet underneath them. They had not had a hit movie, a big hit movie at that time, unlike Miramax, which had already had multiple blockbusters, had really grown into a pretty powerful film distribution company and producer so they're like maybe before everybody goes back home or goes back to uh, goes back to college we can cash in for the long christmas to new year's time frame and honestly i don't think anyone expected this thing to make more than 20 25 million dollars at most and slashers by the way even the big ones never were very big hits overseas either so i don't think they were really thinking this movie had much of an international play and based on the box office it seemed like they were all pretty right Horror movies are very front-loaded, so it looked like it was probably going to make around $4 million on its opening weekend. With that kind of trajectory for a horror movie, they wouldn't even make it to $15 million. So this is pretty disappointing. I think they spent around $17 million on this movie, and they were already starting to lick their wounds and thinking about, like, man, we kind of missed it. We, we, you know, we thought this thing was going to be big. But by the end of that first weekend, numbers already started looking a little bit better. It was the very rare horror movie that seemed to leg out over this weekend. It made around $6 million over the opening weekend. But that wasn't the end of it. The following week, it barely lost any business at all and was doing good business throughout the holiday season. And week after week, it kept losing very little box office, one drop after another after another, and eventually made over $100 million, which immediately made it the most financially successful in terms of dollars, not tickets sold, but in terms of dollars, of any slasher movie that had ever been released. So this was really eye-opening. And as a matter of fact, it was probably even before its second weekend when they knew that this thing was picking up steam, that they greenlit the second Scream movie. And it was released the very next Christmas. So it was a very quick production, a pretty crazy turnaround time to be able to put that all together. And there were quite some pain points in getting the film out for Scream 2. But nonetheless, Scream 2 was also a huge success, made over $100 million. Oh, and by the way, I mentioned that uh, slash movies really don't do well overseas, but the first Scream movie made over $170 million, as did the second, so two huge successes. And the third made almost about as much as well, although fans definitely didn't enjoy it as much. So that gets us to the legacy of the Scream films themselves. So what can I say about Scream? I always enjoy this film a lot. I've gone through waves where initially when I saw it, I was so impressed with it. And then over time, I kind of was like, well, maybe it wasn't as good. You know, maybe the sequels had kind of diluted my interest in the franchise. And then it may be, I guess it's four years ago, I had my nephews over for Halloween and we were going to watch a scary movie. And my nephews were teenagers at the time. One was, you know, an older teenager. One was a younger teenager. And I'm like, what can I watch that would be like a good teenage friendly horror movie? And I thought, you know, what's pretty good? Good old slashers killing teenagers. And I know that might sound inappropriate, <laughs> but my younger nephew had already seen all of the Saw movies. Not my idea, by the way, but he had already seen them. So I was like, hey, I'm safe with this. So, uh, Scream is nowhere near as problematic as the Saw movies are for a teenager. 
But it really worked. I mean, they loved it. They were on the edge of their seat. They were laughing at all the jokes. They were getting all the cultural references. They had a blast watching this. And I'm like, wow, this thing still works after all these years. So this original recipe is still successful. And that was the last time I'd seen it until just now. I've watched it just recently on streaming. I think, it, unfortunately, I watched it. It was available everywhere. It was on Hulu. It was available for free on Tubi TV. And just until just until December 31st. And if I'd known it was going to die on that day, by the way, they were going to pull the streaming rights on that. I would have warned all the listeners to catch up on it because now I believe it's only on Peacock, but on the paid version of Peacock. And I don't even know anybody who has Peacock. So anyway, I think they shot themselves in the foot if they wanted to attract a larger audience. Paramount, by the way, Paramount Plus was also streaming all the screen movies until the end of the year. This is very confusing, but Paramount is distributing and releasing this new screen movie because they have acquired all of the Miramax titles as part of their bankruptcy because of the sexual assault allegations against Harvey Weinstein. Very, very complicated story that drags all these different things into it. And surprisingly, it's not exclusively on Paramount+, Plus, which I would think that Paramount would definitely be vested in getting people to watch this right as the new film is about to come out. All right, so with all of that table setting, a lot of table setting, <laughs> 20 minutes, 30 minutes of table setting at this point. All right, so the most iconic part of this whole entire film is that opening sequence with Drew Barrymore. By the way, Anybody who's still listening to this now, this is going to be all spoilers. So please watch Scream if you've already seen it or don't mind being spoiled, then keep listening. But that first sequence with Drew Barrymore is like a perfect little mini movie. We just jump right in and it's so clever that right as we see that cold open title on the screen, Scream, and we hear, interestingly, there's a lot of foreshadowing throughout the film. And it starts right at the very beginning, kind of understanding that they have a plan and you're kind of in the hands of someone who's really skilled. We hear the wind blowing the rope swing outside in the trees. This is interesting because it'll pay off later. We see Drew Barrymore inside. She's popping some popcorn. And by the way, is Jiffy Pop still a thing? Does anyone remember Jiffy Pop? I guess everybody can just microwave it now. So why use Jiffy Pop? But maybe just out of nostalgia, <laughs> Jiffy Pop is still out there. So right away, we have some, there's a, an interesting tone that's balanced perfectly here where there's the comedy. We have the fact that there's trivia. This person calls up Drew Barrymore, asks them if he, she knows anything about scary movies, starts asking her some trivia questions, and she mentions, hey, do you like Nightmare on Elm Street? Um, Nightmare on Elm Street. Is that the one where the guy had knives for fingers? Yeah, Freddy Krueger. Freddy, that's right. I like that movie. It was scary. Well, well the first one was, but the rest sucked. So, you got a boyfriend? <laughs> Why? You want to ask me out on a date? Maybe. Do you have a boyfriend? No. You never told me your name. Why do you want to know my name? I want to know who I'm looking at. What did you say? Not who I'm talking to, who I'm looking at. And as soon as that happens, she starts freaking out. And she does the right thing. She locks the doors. She tries to check her all the entrances to the house. And there's way too many doors in that house, by the way. <laughs> but it's something to say that sometimes a big house in an affluent neighborhood may not be as safe as you want. And that's kind of some of the tension that's being built here. And some of the tension that was in the original Halloween movie, right? That was terror in the suburbs, in the supposedly safe suburbs. Drew Barrymore is excellent here, by the way. She gives a really good performance just to call her out again. And as this is going on, you know, the, the trivia on the phone, and then she discovers that her boyfriend's outside. And some of that staging of the dead boyfriend outside is kind of badly done and this is some there's some construction issues i have in general with craven's films i feel like he's not like the best technician when you compare him to like a john carpenter or something who's truly a, an excellent skilled technician but he has other things going for him so even though some of these scenes are a little clunky and as a matter of fact everything gets so overwrought you could almost laugh at it almost but the payoff to this whole sequence as her parents are coming home as she's trying to run out to the road to catch them 
as the killer comes up behind her and stabs her. And then the whole thing where the mother tries to call the police and gets on the phone and hears her on the phone and that she's being killed while her mom is listening to her. And then, of course, they run out the door to try to find her. And that's when they find her hanging in that rope swing that was teased at the very beginning of the sequence. Drive down to the Mackenzie's. No, no, my daughter. Let's go. Call the police. And, you know, Drew Barrymore's performance, the parents' performance there, the shock of it all, it's horrible. <laughs> it's like truly horrible. And it really packs a punch. And it, that, then boom, there you go. That's the opening of the film. It's almost perfect. This perfect little horror movie to kick things off gives you the tone perfectly. It's going to give you the laughs, but it's not going to let you off the hook at the end. Now, ironically, I could almost spend almost as much time talking about that opening sequence as the rest of the film, but there's a lot to appreciate in the rest of the film as well. And I'll call that some of my favorite parts here. So a few things that I find very interesting right after that, Sydney, our final girl, our protagonist, saying, I think I heard, she thinks she hears something, which of course is probably the killing occurring, not that far away from her. And then Billy Loomis, her boyfriend, comes through the window. Loomis, by the way, Billy Loomis, Loomis is Dr. Loomis, is the doctor from uh, Donald Pleasant's character from the Halloween movies, just one of many call-outs to other horror movies here. And interestingly, very much like a Agatha Christie type film, we start to set up who could be these suspects almost immediately. Billy shows up at the door and you know immediately at the window, I should say, you know immediately that he's being set up as, oh, is it Billy? And then we also see the dad trying to get inside the door. And when we see the dad, there's just something weird about his performance. So he's a little creepy too. There's something a little off about him. He's heading off to the airport. Why is he going out of town? He says, I thought I heard screaming. Was he, did he hear screaming because he was committing a murder? But interestingly, since this is all spoilers, Billy, of course, turns out to be one of the murderers. And on the soundtrack, we hear a cover of Don't Fear the Reaper clever that they are hinting right away that he is the reaper he's the killer another thing that's very much of its era by the way is i find it interesting you have someone from party of five you have another actress from friends you have fonzie <laughs> the original fonzie playing the principal so there's just like this all of these kind of winking references to teen centered multi-generationally teen centered sitcoms and, and, and uh, tv shows in the casting itself all part of this meta-ness of the film the next day at school, everyone finds out what happened. And another really clever piece of writing, I have to say, is when they're around the fountain. How do you gut someone? You take a knife and you slit them from groin to sternum. Hey, it's called tact, you fuckrag. Hey, Stu, didn't you used to date Casey? Yeah, for like two seconds. Before she dumped him for Steve. I thought you dumped him for me. I did, he's full of shit. And are the police aware that you dated the victim? Hey, what are you saying? That I killed her? It would certainly improve your high school kill. He seems to just know too much about <laughs> the details of the murder the night before. And we really don't notice it the first time around, but it's interesting to see that here. And then Billy immediately jumps up and says, hey, have some tact. And once again, in the initial reading of the film, you think that he's yelling at him or giving him the stink eye because he's saying, hey, don't get all the girls upset. 
but that's not at all. Of course, he's saying, hey, don't be so obvious. <laughs> like, you know, we just did this last night. Shut your mouth. You know, we're not off the hook yet. So it's an interesting way that you can read this multiple ways. So there it is right very early in the film, just like you would in any one of these kind of traditional murder mysteries. You have the antagonists in plain sight and they're even talking about what they did. And we're just not seeing it because we don't expect it this early in the film, but very well done, very clever and very much in line with the traditions of the genre. Some other interesting points here we see when Sydney gets gets back home and all of a sudden when she's walking around that house, she's locking the doors and, you know, it's a very open house, like open plan before everybody had open plan. Lots of windows, lots of light streaming in. And because we had just seen Drew Barrymore be like basically stalked from outside the house through her window, someone was outside watching her. All of a sudden being in this very light, very airy, beautiful, I think, California at home. I think they're in California. That all seems very intimidating, right? Because they could be watching her from anywhere. You know, she she has access points. Uh, you know, there, there's so many ways that someone could enter through the house or be watching her through the windows. So a real reversal on the kind of the claustrophobia of the old dark house with this very open spacious. It's almost like an inversion, an, an interesting one. Another thing that I think is very interesting here, and I remember even when I initially saw it, I was very impressed that they had kind of fleshed this out, is that Sydney's mother is kind of like the original sin that like sets all of this plot in motion. And it's not just like an arbitrary backstory. Even at the time, it was an interesting backstory that somehow the mother had committed some kind of indiscretion rather than being the sins of the father being visited upon the son. It's like the sins of the mother being visited upon the daughter. And interestingly, in two ways, this ends up paying off in the trilogy. So maybe Williamson had this underlying mythology of the mom's backstory. Even more interestingly, an additional layer of metatext here is that we see Rose McGowan here in one of her earlier roles. And of course, Harvey Weinstein would have worked with her multiple times in the near next few years, eventually would sexually assault her, which would lead to his downfall, one of the many women who accused him of sexual assault. So it's interesting that we're seeing this here. It's kind of a little creepy to look back on it. But even more interestingly, if you haven't seen Scream 3, that the finale of that, Sydney's mother, who had like a previous life as a would-be starlet, who gave up her dreams because she was sexually assaulted by a producer of a film, basically the Wes Craven analog in that film. And it had kind of ruined her career and she had walked away from Hollywood and had come back to her town and basically tried to erase that part of her history, which of course came back to haunt her in multiple ways. But it's very interesting. Here's a film produced by Harvey Weinstein and his brother, Bob, by far one of the most financially successful films they ever made, which deals in an indirect way with sexual assault and the kind of quid pro quo that starlets need to participate in to be successful in Hollywood when it was actually happening behind the scenes. A little bit of extra strange subtext here, probably not intentional, but interesting nonetheless. But back to Sydney, she falls asleep. Now it's the nighttime. She gets a phone call. And I find it very funny that she literally says, oh, I don't like horror movies. It's a bunch of idiotic girls who should be running out the front door. Meanwhile, they're running up the stairs and within moments, the ghost face killer is inside the house chasing her. She runs to the front door. She tries to open it. She has the chain on the door to keep somebody out. But now, of course, it's keeping her in. So after she fails to open the front door, she runs up the stairs and is chased up the stairs by Ghostface Killer, just like she mocked moments before. So this is something that happens. Once again, another clever piece of writing. She makes it into a room. And we saw earlier on, once again, planting a seed that she can close that door so her dad can't come in by getting the closet door and her entry door to catch on their doorknobs. So that's what she uses to keep the killer outside. And her phone cord's been cut, so she can't make a phone call. However, she can make an internet call. 
I guess she's not using dial-up. Are we beyond dial-up at this point? Probably, probably, I would assume, right, at this point. But she makes an internet call, good old text 911, and it works. Ghostface disappears. And of course, Billy comes through the window minutes later because he was there the whole time, as we were to discover. He drops a phone. She starts getting very suspicious, very suspicious about Billy, as she should be. She's at the police station. They're questioning Billy. They lock him up temporarily. But she goes to stay with um, her friend and gets a phone call from the killer once again, saying, did you finger the wrong guy again? It's important that she says again, because it was her testimony that sent her mom's supposed killer to jail. And this is when we start fleshing out Courtney Cox's character, Gail Weathers. Quite a movie name, but maybe appropriate for <laughs> someone who works on a local TV station. And I'd forgotten, by the way, that Courtney Cox and um, her, you know, soon-to-be husband met here. And they actually do have some cute chemistry, although I'm not a big fan of David Arquette. He's a little overly mannered for my taste, but it works here. And everyone's back. It's amazing that this whole cast, core cast, has returned for another Scream movie. They've all survived this whole thing. But Courtney Cox is very good here, by the way, and even more so. I have to say that as the series continues, especially when you get to the third film, which doesn't really work for me as well as the others, or maybe... None of them do. It's just diminishing returns. I really like her performance throughout the series. I think she really humanizes this really, really, you know, under it all, easily despicable character who she turns her into a sympathetic figure. So kudos to Courtney Cox, another strong performance there as well. But Gail, the character, is not convinced that that Sydney identified the correct culprit. She makes a lot of uh, extrapolations or a lot of, uh, <laughs> it, takes, it takes a lot of, um, she makes a lot of logical leaps to exonerate cotton weary although she turns out to be right at the end we hear red right hand by nick cave multiple times here and that also is a through line throughout the series different versions of red right hand appearing throughout there and now you've probably heard that song also as the theme song for peaky blinders if you watch that and there's one thing that kind of maybe always bothered me even at the time maybe because i was younger at the time but still bothers me now is the overwhelming cynicism that is kind of represented by these kids they will eventually like run out of a party just to go see the, the the dead principal. And of course, they're making jokes like immediately after their one of their supposed friends has been murdered. So there's a lot of, of cynicism here, which doesn't really ring that true for me. Among young people, I don't think they're really as cynical as they make them out to be. But hey, it's a movie. The middle of the film, there's a lot of stalking. And some of this works. Some of this doesn't work as well anymore. But, you know, there's some stalking around the around the school building. Billy eventually goes back to school. He kind of confronts Sydney, saying, why don't you trust me? And the principal gets murdered. But no one knows about it till later on. The killers have done a good job of of framing Sydney's dad. They had cloned his phone, and they're using his phone to make the calls. They trace the calls, and now they're looking for the dad who's disappeared conveniently. So where could he be? He never made his flight. So there's a curfew set, and the kids decide, hey, safest thing we could do is all get together, right? If we're all in the same house together, what bad can happen to us? So one person I forgot to mention so far is... Jamie Kennedy, not a huge fan of Jamie Kennedy. So he plays Randy. He's like a geek who loves horror movies. And he knows all the rules of the horror genre, the slasher genre specifically. You can't drink, you can't have sex, and you never say, I'll be back. So the culmination of the film, and by the way, the film is almost two hours long, maybe even over two hours long, and really doesn't feel long at all. It's like really just moves at a very brisk clip. And all for all three films, by, by the way, the last sequence is, is long. Like it's a big chunk of the film. The last uh, set piece is almost half the film in both in all cases. And the final confrontation uh, is like, you know, 20, 30 minutes in some cases on these films. But as you sus suspect, you know, a bunch of drunk kids in that house and with the killer among them, they get getting picked off one at a time. We see Tatum, Rose McGowan's character, gets killed in the garage, and we've seen also that Courtney Cark's uh, Gail's uh, that Gail is out in the the news van with her cameraman, and they've actually put a camera inside the house to eavesdrop on the kids. But there's a time delay 
between the capture of the images and broadcast. I'm not sure how that works unless it has some kind of local storage, but <laughs> I'll allow it because it has some fun payoffs. And the best one is once the news breaks that the principal's been hung from the goalposts at the uh, football field, house clears out. More cynicism there, by the way. There's a really great scene in which Jamie Kennedy is watching Halloween. And as we hear that notes, those three notes, whenever Michael Myers appears in the background of the scene, just as that music plays, we see Ghostface Killer come into the room. And then Jamie Kennedy, the actor playing Randy, is yelling at the TV saying to Laurie in the Halloween movie, played by Jamie Lee Curtis. No, Jamie. Uh, watch out. Watch out, Jamie. You know he's around. You, you know. Oh, oh, there he is. I told you. I told you he's right around the corner. Jamie. Jamie. Jamie, look behind you. Look behind you. Turn around. Behind you. I'll turn. Behind you. Behind you, Jamie. So this is very clever. All this parallel layered action is, is very well done. Now, interestingly, also Billy and Sydney have finally had sex with each other. So Sydney's no longer a virgin. So now she supposedly broke the rule. She is fair game. Billy is literally saying to her, what do I need to do to prove to you that I'm not a killer? Cause she starts questioning, wait a second, maybe you could have made that call. He's like, wait a second. You, you still think I could, you, I just had sex with you. You think I could be a killer? And of course says, what do I need to do to convince you? And at that moment, Ghostface killer comes in stabs him multiple times which of course is a pretty convincing supposedly pretty convincing <laughs> turnaround of events the killer tries to kill sydney she escapes out a window she gets injured but survives and all this culminates you have dewey's there he's knocked out courtney cox has made it back to the house after being knocked out in the woods randy's been oh randy's outside still stewart matthew lillard very funny by the way very funny in this they're both saying, don't believe him. He's the killer. Let me in. She can't decide. She closes them both out. Billy comes down the stairs, has survived the stabbing. And all of this eventually leads to Billy and Stuart confronting Sydney and saying, we're the ones who did it. I don't know why this would be such a shock, <laughs> but the two killers thing was so clever. I really was so surprised by this. I mean, I really didn't see it coming. I guess it's just because once again, just setting expectations in a slasher film. I mean, it's a killer, right? The killer works alone or, or it has no personality at all. So it was really shocking to see. No, they're, they're budding up. <laughs> so very clever twist. I really thought this was great. I did not see it coming at all. And I'm usually very good at predicting the ends of these things. And this whole last sequence is very long, but it's very entertaining. I mean, uh, they start fighting with each other. They start stabbing each other a little too much. Matthew Lillard is hilarious when he gets upset that maybe his mom will find out. They're going to be so mad. Hello? Are you alone in the house? You bitch, where the fuck are you? Not so fast. We're going to play a little game. It's called... Guess who just called the police and reported you? Sorry, motherfucking ass! Find you, you dipshit! Get up! I can't, Billy. How are you coming, dude? I think I'm dying here, man. Hello? 
Oh, Stu, Stu, Stu. What's your motive? Billy's got one. The police are on their way. What are you going to tell them? Peer pressure. Did you really call the police? You bet your sorry ass I did. My mom and dad are going to be so Poor Stuart. His parents are going to be so upset with him. But this whole sequence is really great. And I like the reversal. You know, Sydney uses the voice on them and attacks them, basically turns it all around on them. And I like this story. He's like saying, hey, you know, kid, people need ex- need excuses for killing anymore. This, unfortunately, all predates um, the Columbine shooting, which in retrospect, people got upset about. But I mean, this came out years before then, although it did impact the production of the third film. They had to t- change the storylines around a little bit out of concern that it paralleled a little bit of that tragedy and the whole sequence really plays out well i don't even know how they got access i don't even know how they got permission to play halloween and uh, i guess you know what miramax owned the rights to halloween at this point i think so that's probably why they could were allowed to use halloween because it's all over the soundtrack here at the end and used uh, effectively but the whole setup at the end it was gonna they were gonna frame the dad the dad like lost his mind a year after the murder of his wife kills his daughter stalks her friends and that was going to be the frame up and they were going to be the heroes they were the ones who saved everybody they're going to stab each other just enough to survive till the hospitalization but they start cutting a little too deeply and uh getting a little too crazy can't never trust the serial killer in the end all of our favorite characters survive sydney survives gail survives randy survives sydney kills both of the the killers Dewey survives, of course. I forgot to mention Dewey. And another strange signature of this series, <laughs> a gunshot to the head. <laughs> so that's right. You know, that killer always comes back, always jumps up. So always shoot for the head. <laughs> and all the killers get a shot to the head at the end of <laughs> in each one of these films. So we'll see if it continues for the next one as well. So that was the recap of Scream 1. So next week, we'll be talking about the finale of Dexter. And time permitting, I will give probably a quick recap of Scream 2 three and four just so you're ready to go see scream five or just scream as it's being called the new reboot so with all that out of the way finally let's get to the dexter new blood episode nine recap the episode's called the family business So I had relatively little bad to say about this week's episode of Dexter, Dexter New Blood. And I'll save my final judgment for the finale. But most of the sins of this show have been, I think, in the construction of the season itself. It's overpacked, to say the least. But this episode itself holds up pretty well. It pays off a lot of what we've seen up until this point. We open with a pretty strange sequence (laughs) that we see Dexter is telling Harrison his origin story with Ghost Deb there reminding him or warning him not to tell too much, but basically tells a story of a clown who runs Mr. Wiggles Playland, who apparently is also a child killer. And this is pretty gross. (laughs) Maybe I've just outgrown some of this, these plot contrivances with these young girls and now even younger children being murdered by this serial killer for all for the pretense of some kind of entertainment value, I guess. (laughs) Maybe I've just aged out of this genre of TV. But regardless, uh, we have a creepy clown. Sonai know does not like creepy clowns, so I'd love to get her impression of this. And Dexter's tracked this guy down, has done his due diligence, has found his stash of photographs of these tortured children. In his recollection, kills Mr. Wiggles. But tells Harrison, no, he just ties him down, confronts him with the evidence, and tells him, you have to be good from now on. Harrison doesn't buy this for a second because he's thinking, why wouldn't he turn him in? Why wasn't this guy arrested? This guy's just good now all of a sudden. So this story 
doesn't really fly with Harrison. And Harrison kind of susses out pretty quickly what actually happens to these evildoers under Dexter's observation. And after this heartwarming story between father and son, Dexter starts telling Harrison, part of all of this is you have to act like a real normal person, like a real boy, Pinocchio. And part of that is apparently coming up with weird character traits. For example, perhaps liking to wear really ugly Christmas sweaters, which apparently is one of the signatures that Dexter has devised for himself. He puts on an ugly Christmas sweater along with Harrison and they head over to Angela's home. And this is the scene that we tease at the end of last week's episode in a recap, where as they're kind of having their monkey bread and their Christmas tradition, Kurt shows up. Of all people, what is Kurt doing here? They were pretty sure Kurt would be out the door hiding somewhere, but no, he's not. He stops by Angela's house and appears, I would guess, he leaves something there that we don't find out till the very end of the episode. This lights a fire under Dexter and Harrison. They're like, we have to do our due diligence. I told you there's a process for this. We need to do this with Kurt as well. So just like nothing in this whole entire show has been not a clue to something else. <laughs> Literally every single thing that has been appeared in any scene and at any point in this show will have a payoff, which makes me wonder why is that oil guy, that creepy billionaire oil baron, not present yet in the plot? I assume they're going to try to squeeze him into the end. Don't know how that's going to happen. Regardless, even the gift that Kurt gave to Harrison, the drone, is used here. And they do a little surveying of the area where Kurt disappeared in the previous episode, and they find some kind of ventilation. So that night, they head out. They break plans, Christmas plans, with Angela. Supposedly, Dexter wants to take Harris out on a camping trip to go see the Blood Moon. And while they're investigating Kurt... Kurt has arrived at their home with a giant truck full of oil. This guy's got many, many resources, but he goes and burns up their cabin and he's sitting there with his sniper rifle to kill them as they exit. They intentionally trip his alarm, which of course he gets a notification on his phone that they are inside the underground bunker. As soon as Kurt sees that, he panics and starts to pack up to make his escape. Simultaneously, Dexter and Harrison are entering the underground bunker. Harrison excitedly wants Dexter to show him how to pick a lock, and they make a very grisly discovery. We've been seeing these embalmed women throughout the course of the show, and we see here is where they're all on display, including Molly Parker. Once again, I have a problem with this. I find that the disposability of the women on this show, except for Angela, has been pretty egregious, in my opinion. You have a pretty self-confident and supposedly self-sufficient character in Molly who is just off, off screen, just casually, and he's killed her, embalmed her. This whole thing has happened. And she just disappears from the story in a very unceremonious way. So another thing I really didn't like in this particular episode. I really don't think there's any reason they had to kill Molly, to be honest, honest with you. But once again on the show, apparently there can't be any loose ends at all. And they have time to make this discovery, to have a conversation about it, and to get back to Kurt's house before he makes it back there. And Dexter drugs him and wraps him up and puts him there amongst his prizes. And Dexter is explaining the code to Harrison. They've done their due diligence. They have the evidence they need. And Harrison obviously has figured out at this point that Kurt is going to get killed. There's pretty apparent what is going to happen here. Dexter, on the other hand, is downright giddy. He's like, he finally has a playmate after all these years. And he's jumping way ahead here. And regardless of what Harrison tells him, very similar, by the way, and maybe this is something that is I will give the compliment to show for, this is kind of the reaction when he saw Ethan's drawings. Kind of smiles and says, oh, show me more. And similar here. He's kind of has a freak out and then all of a sudden his face kind of goes like calm and he's like, yeah, dad, you're doing the right thing. The world's a better place. But I think what's happening here is that Harrison is seeing Dexter for what he is. And once again, I'll compliment the show here for what it's done. 
in that maybe this is a little bit of a criticism of the fandom that Dexter has established. I've spoken to Dexter fans that kind of think that Dexter's a great guy instead of seeing for him for what he is, which is a serial killer who conveniently <laughs> allows us the convenience of accepting him for the fact that he kills only supposedly bad guys. This is very loose. The fact that he's killed Matt for kind of being a jerk. <laughs> That's his biggest downfall, just for being a jerky person. And there's lots of jerky people out there who don't all necessarily deserve to die. And Kurt calls him out on this, by the way, calls out uh, Dexter for his supposed killing of Matt. Although obviously Kurt being killed unquestionably <laughs> and overall good for society. But in Harrison's reaction here, he's disturbed by what he's seeing. The show, once again, is presenting this, I think, well, in the fact that we see Dexter, regardless of what he says, is getting like almost an orgasmic release when he kills Kurt and then gleefully chops his bodies up. This is how many parts you should chop them up into. This whole butchering is occurring. And then there's a flashback. Harrison has a flashback to his mother's death when the blood kind of like seeps in his direction. So he is... Dexter doesn't pick up on it, but he's obviously disturbed by what he's seeing. When they head back home, by the time they get done with this disposal of the body, they burn the body in the same incinerator where Matt's body was disposed of. And by the time they get home, it's eight o'clock in the morning. The sun's up and Audrey's very happy to see Harrison. They had actually thought it was possible that they had died inside the house. And Angela confronts Dexter and says, where were you guys? And he goes, oh, we were out hiking out to see the blood moon for eight hours. This is a very strange amount of time to be out and about in the middle of the night, but no questions asked, at least not at the time. I'm sure she has questions on her own mind. She's already suspected, by the way. She started doing more explorations of the Bay Harbor butcher murders. So she's getting more and more suspicious of Dexter in relation to that. And she also says to Dexter, well, why would someone want to kill you guys? Like, who would want to burn down your house? Who's that? Dexter's like, well, I don't know. Audrey offers, mom, of course, they have to stay with us. This is terrible. Angela's not so happy about this idea. And Dexter even says, oh, no, no, we'll just stay at the inn. And Audrey's like, no way, mom, we, we have to let them stay. So they all head back to Angela's house where I think they're going to be bunking next week. Angela checks her mailbox and discovers the screws and a note saying Jim killed Matt. And I believe that was left behind when Kurt came by. It's the most obvious answer to that. That was the reason that he stopped by the house to implicate Dexter in the murders. And that's where we leave things with just one episode to go. So in the next scenes coming up, it's hard to get a feel for exactly what we're going to see. It looks like considering, you know, it's probably going to be a normal sized episode, 40, 50 minutes long. It seems like there's a lot of just hanging around the house and just kind of other logistics of the plot playing out, which means that the wrap up is probably going to be quick in the last 15, 20 minutes, which by the way, was kind of how the original Dexter series kind of was. They always wrapped up all the plot points in those last few minutes of the episode, which once again is more hurried than it needs to be. They could have had, and maybe this will still happen, by the way, I'm speculating here, a more drawn out revelation or confrontation between Harrison and Dexter, which I assume is inevitably going to happen. And we'll see. We'll see how it all play, pans out for next week. Now, if you don't want to know what I'm speculating on, you can end the episode right now. But I will tell you what, if you want to hang around, I'll tell you what I think is going to happen. And I think it's pretty clear that there's been no announcement for a season two of Dexter New Blood. And I think that Harrison is going to kill Dexter. That's my guess. Harrison is going to comply with Dexter's code. And he's seen Dexter for what he is, and he's going to have to kill this father figure of his. That's quite a lot to have just made this connection with your dad and then have to do this. But I don't think Harrison's going to be able to handle or live with himself if he doesn't do this. So I think that's the ending of the show. And I think it would be apropos. I mean, in the end, Dexter is the thing that he has supposedly say he's not. He probably shouldn't have survived the original series, to be honest. And I think that's the what's going to happen in the end. On the other hand, it's possible that this has been, that there are alternate endings because in case they want to renew the show 
And on this, that side of things is the fact if Harrison's going to be the one who finally kills the uh, Dexter off, why even have the whole Angela discovering Dexter's secret? Because theoretically, she can eventually go to him and say, I know who you are, but maybe she's okay with him being a vigilante. In the end, killing Kurt was not a bad thing in her mind. So will she somehow be okay with this vigilanteism if she really believes his story? Or will Harrison just turn in Dexter and Dexter ends up because he can't bring himself to kill him. So instead Dexter's imprisoned in the end. And then you can imagine a series where Harrison's on the outside, Dexter's on the inside, and you could extend the series that way. I don't know how satisfying that would be. So I still think if I put money down, it's going to be Harrison killing Dexter. Although I'm not sure how these other plot points are going to pan out. So that remains to be seen. There, I think there's gonna be more to it than just Harrison and Dexter having a final confrontation. So there probably will be some surprises next week. I am definitely curious to see how this ends up. I'm not very confident that I'm going to be that happy with it, <laughs> but am interested in knowing how they're going to pull it off. All right, so stay tuned for all of that. Later this week, keep your eyes peeled for those notifications. If you're following our show, there will be a follow-up conversation, the remainder of the Get Back series available on Disney Plus now, the Beatles documentary that dropped over Christmas or before Christmas. And many people watched it during the holidays. So if you haven't, definitely watch that. It's very interesting. But I'll be continuing my conversation with Ian. We are wrapping up the rest of that, that documentary and playing some lesser known Beatles songs. Something that we'll be doing more and more in the future of having different configurations of episodes where we will be introducing all of you to different artists or maybe just obscure albums by certain artists or maybe just deep cuts on popular albums that probably don't, in this world of Spotify, the convenience of streaming, you don't always get around to some of these deeper cuts. So stay tuned for that, and thanks for listening again. I'll talk to you soon.